information that we are sharing today is our own personal experiences and does not constitute as medical advice. Please check with your doctor for medical advice that is suited to you and your condition. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome back to Take a Pain Check. Today we have a little bit of a different perspective when it comes to JIA. Lori was diagnosed with JIA as a child and took an interest in patient care and patient research. Now she is the advisory partner in her successful research project in the JIA option map alongside her partner in crime, Kareen, at the Choice Research Lab in Ottawa. It is truly amazing to see what Dr. Kareen has done with her research for patients with JIA. Often on our podcast, we have patients that have JIA or people that are in a relationship with others that have JIA. But today we want to talk, take a moment to talk about a researcher and to a researcher who has interactions with people with JIA and focuses her research project on people with JIA. Yeah, sure. I'll go first. Uh, so my name is Lori Crew. Um, yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or back then it was called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis uh, when I was 14, from a small little town in eastern Ontario. So I've spent a lot of my adolescence and my teenage years, you know, doing the trek back and forth from this little town to Ottawa once I was, you know, officially at the children's hospital and that sort of thing. And yeah, eventually I ended up getting involved with a patient organization called the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance. And it's from there that... I got involved and I met Kat in and, and I got involved in a lot of different research projects as a patient partner, sort of bringing my lived experience with JIA um, and as a young adult and, you know, growing up, you know, seeing it all, you know, as someone with inflammatory arthritis. So, yeah, and that sort of led to my collaboration with Kat in. Well, I'm um, Karin Toupin-April. I'm a scientist uh, and a professor at the University of Ottawa. Um, so I trained as an occupational therapist, uh, and then I did a PhD in public health and epidemiology um, and a postdoc in Ottawa here. Um, and so I started to do research uh, in juvenile idiopathic arthritis, probably close, close to like 20 years ago. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so I got involved a lot with the Canadian Arthritis Network uh, when I was a master's student, and that's what kind of started this adventure. Um, of doing some research on juvenile arthritis. Do you have like a personal connection to juvenile arthritis? I have asthma. So uh, since I was like a, a newborn, since I was six months old, uh, I've had asthma. Um, so I always felt that, you know, asthma and juvenile arthritis have some, uh, some similarities. So there's a lot of projects that I did in juvenile arthritis. And I was like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure in asthma, people would say similar things. Um, so I guess it's my connection as a patient, you know, first and foremost. Um, that kind of led me to this work. And it's by chance that I did research on juvenile arthritis because uh, there was a really good supervisor and she was really nice. And she said, oh, I have, you know, projects on juvenile arthritis. And I was like, what is that? What is juvenile arthritis? I didn't know you could be a kid and have arthritis, right? Um, and so that's what started it. And I just felt it was, it's such a complex condition and it influences the lives of, you know, young people who have it. And I just felt really that it was like a really important topic. Totally agree with that. It is a really important topic. And Laurie, as you mentioned, you were diagnosed younger. So what joints were affected at that time and what joints are affected right now as you kind of grew older? Did that change? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, at first, I, it's, it's kind of strange, you know, it started in my hips. And honestly, like my hips are probably less affected now, but they it started then I used to be a competitive dancer. So I had to, you know, uh, bow out out of a few competitions. And we just we didn't know what it was, we thought it maybe was an injury. And uh, so it took a while, like, I think it probably took about a year to get like an official diagnosis. And then unfortunately, I was referred to an adult rheumatologist. And I think sometimes this can happen when you're like, at this in between age, it's like, oh, you're just a small adult, but you're actually not. And uh, so yeah, then it sort of evolved into, of course, many different joints, and it was more prototypical, you know, the the rheumatoid flavor, you know, of, of arthritis with my hands and my wrists. Um, my feet as well. Um, and so um, it affected me a lot in the beginning because I was, um, and I think Natasha, you study music as well. So with me, I, I played the piano quite seriously. Like I was probably in grade nine piano, um, you know, with the Royal Conservatory when I was diagnosed. And so it was really hard to then have such difficulty uh, playing the piano and having to kind of, uh, you know, I, I think I would have pursued music as a career. So then, you know, having it affect my hands so much at such an early point, I'm, you know, had to switch gears. And uh, I mean, on one hand, I like to think, well, at least I was able to adapt and there was time to adapt and change career paths. Some adults don't have that 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 benefit but um yeah it was hard during those times but it has sort of spread to like all over the place so i ended up with arthritis in my neck my spine uh, so yeah i think it's pretty much like what joints aren't affected is more the question <laughs> so. so you didn't really have a transition to, to adult rheumatology you were kind of already thrown into that well, it's funny, I ended up finding out about the children's hospital here in Ottawa. And so then I sort of started on adult rheumatology, I went to pediatric, and then I actually transitioned to adults later, because I really wasn't doing well. So I was 19 or 20, when I made the the, trend, the official transition <laughs> from pediatrics to adults. And I'm really glad to see I'm really happy I had the experience in pediatrics because it really showed me how to bring all these different care providers together because they did it for me, right? They held my hand and, you know, would have me see an OT, have me see a physiotherapist. If I needed to see someone else, they'd arrange that as well. And so I think that set like a good role model for then how I, I try to manage my care now because it's as an adult, you're on your own, unfortunately. And so you have to coordinate it and access OT and access all these people and you need to manage it. So I haven't transitioned yet. So I, I'm, I'm hoping it takes a while till I transition because everyone's been giving me very bad stories on transition and I don't want to experience that. So I'm just waiting. Um, and I know you mentioned that you're also a mother and you do have kids. Is it hard to be a mom and have JIA and also how old are your kids because we'd love to know that. <laughs> yeah so no I have two kids uh, my daughter Claire is 14 and my son is eight um, Charlie is his name um, it was definitely challenging I think I had more 
trepidation about it actually before having them and and but then it's it's funny you know as a parent living with JI and of course I had like a, a significant amount of joint damage right like I also grew up in a different time I always like to preface that I I, I only was able to access a biologic by my early 20s um, that option didn't even exist you know when I was like oh so I do think outcomes are, are you know there's so many more options than there were for me so I had quite a bit of joint damage but it's it's funny you know like I I find I adapted to parenthood just like I had learned to adapt to everything <laughs> you know whether it was school whether it was getting in you know a job and working and so really those, and I like to think that that's sort of like our superpower as people with, with arthritis, <laughs> that uh, we get to, we've really just had to adapt our lives to the world around us, right? Because it's not adapted to us. And and so a lot of those same skills played played into things. And, you know, I found it, 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 it was hard, there's no doubt. And, but that sort of inspired me because I found it was really hard to find information Um whether it be on medications that are safe during pregnancy, whether it would be like how to care for a, you know, a newborn when my hands and I have a lot of joint damage, how to manage the fatigue. So that's why with my involvement with uh, CAPA, the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance, we developed or I spearheaded the development of um, resources to kind of help, you know, pr provide some of that information to people so they wouldn't be struggling to find it on their own. So hopefully it's all together and can, you know, make hopefully, you know, le lessen the stress at the end of the day or that trepidation that I felt, you know, so hopefully others don't feel the same way that I did. I feel I like I agree that when you have JIA, you are resilient and adaptive to so many things because especially when people can't see your disease, they aren't, they're even less likely to adapt to the things that you need and to, you know, work around that. So on that note, how does your husband support you and your arthritis? I mean, he's been, he's, he's been great. And I mean, he's always known me with arthritis. So he's kind of always <laughs> been there from the beginning, you know, again, I guess another bonus of being diagnosed so young, it's like you find, you know, a partner, or I think there's a higher chance that you'll find a partner that is supportive and understands. So he's been there sort of every step of the way. And, you know, when I get too tired, he help, would help take over some of the, you know, waking up in the night, um, did that a lot, right? So it was very equal, if not maybe more on him, you know, there's no doubt. <laughs> and yeah, he kind of supplements in, you know, some of the things that maybe I can't do, like kicking around the soccer ball and like those sorts of things. But yeah. he, he sort of takes over some of those things. So I think, I, I think in the end, it's probably good for kids to see that a parent is not, you know, a perfect you know, we're, none of us are really perfect. And I think it just kind of shows kids that, you know, you can live with a health condition and still have and do all the things you really want to do in life and that we're not all the same, you know, that there are a lot of people out there who live with a health condition and maybe, you know, being a little more understanding and empathetic. So I'd like to think that, uh, you know, it can have positive effects is super important and it's amazing that you found that 
in your husband and your friends and I guess like everyone that's around you there must be super supportive and that's probably why you keep them there to talk about Kareen's story as well because Kareen had asthma and so I just wanted to know since that is your story how did that really affect why you wanted to do research or start patient engagement and shared decision making maybe give us a little bit of background of what that is and then dive into how your story inspired you to start your research. Yeah, so I think so. It's funny because uh, I think having asthma made a changed a lot of things in my life, including my career. And I think as Laurie said, right, she was doing piano. So I was doing a lot of ballet and I gained a lot of weight when I was I was in a kind of doing it at a ballet school and I gained a lot of weight. And I didn't know why until a few years ago, I met with arthritis patients who told me that their body changed completely when they use corticosteroids. And I was like, you know what? It's when I was really sick and I was on corticosteroid for a while that I gained weight. And then after that for ballet, it wasn't like optimal, right? Because you can get hurt. And that's probably, so it's probably changed my career choice. Anyway, so this is just like one of the things like, you know, I relate to Lori so much on so many different levels. Um, so what happened is that uh, for sure, I went into like healthcare, potentially because I had asthma, right? So I've seen like physicians and nurses. Um, and so, that, you know, really, it kind of changed the way I felt about healthcare. And I really wanted to get engaged in healthcare. Um, and I decided to do research like one day when my asthma was so bad. So I was going to an exam in occupational therapy. And I was going to my exam walking. And I was like, I can barely breathe. I was taking like a lot of medication that day. And I was like, I can like, I, so what happened is I was, I was with a dog. I did some volunteering. I slept in a place where there was a dog before me, like, and I was just so sick. Um, and so I was like, how come I'm not able to breathe right now? Like, how come, like what went wrong? Right. How come I'm not able to like self-manage? How come I couldn't see this coming? Right. Um, and so what happened is that day I was like, okay, I want to do a master's degree. I want to do research. I want to, I want to kind of develop like tools to help people self-manage their chronic conditions, whatever chronic conditions, I think it's all kind of similar, right? It's kind of being in charge of your health, um, tr knowing what you can do to prevent like all the episodes, you know, all the problematic stuff that comes from a disease and being able to really make the best decision for yourself and be in charge. So I realized I wasn't in charge. I didn't really take it, you know, I, I didn't have, like, if I had a test, like I would have failed that test for managing my asthma. Um, and so that's what started it. So then I decided to go into research. Um, and it's funny because it's only a few years later. So I was doing, you know, my PhD and I, then I started to do research and I was at the postdoc and um, some people that I was working with. So there's the group, Peter Tugwell's group in Ottawa, they were building patient decision aids. And I started to hear about patient decision aids and shared decision-making and I was like, what is that? So I looked into what shared decision-making is. So it's kind of like a process by which you make a decision with your healthcare providers. Um, the best would be to have many different healthcare providers, right? Like interprofessional uh, healthcare team, that's the best. Um, and so with your healthcare providers, you have to learn about all the different options. So if you have a choice to make, you can't just have one option. Like, oh, your physician tells you, take this medication that doesn't really help you to inform you, right? So you need to know like, what are all the options you can use? What are the benefits and the risk? Um, does that come from scientific evidence, right? You would like to know, is it proven or not? Um, and then you have to really try to understand what is important to you. 
So, okay, what kind of treatment I prefer, right? Do I prefer like, for example, um, you know, a, a pill to take versus um, an injection or versus an infusion in the hospital? All these things are different. So you really have to find like what you prefer. You have to look at also like, what are the benefits and the risk that you value most? So for example, if there's a medication with more risk, but then more chances that it will be more helpful for you, or do you prefer to kind of say, okay, I prefer to have a bit less risk, but even if it works a bit less, like I'm more comfortable with that, right? So you have to make these decisions yourself, I find. Um, so I think you really need to have information on this. So information on the treatments, then you decide what is truly important to you. And you might need some help with that, right? You might need like to talk to healthcare providers or family. Um, and the goal is really you make the best decision for you. So that's kind of how I see shared decision-making. Um, and I realized I didn't always do that, you know, with dealing with my condition. Um, and there's a lot of treatment options I didn't even know. And still now I probably don't know many of the treatment options, right? Um, and then uh, patient decision aids are interesting because they can help prepare people to actually make a decision that is the best decision for them, right? So patient decision aid can be kind of printed material or they could be like videos or web application that are interactive where you put like, hey, you know, um, this is the stuff that I want. This is how my disease is. And then it helps you to make a, a good decision, not a decision for everybody, a decision that's really good for you personally. Um, so when I learned about that, I was like, oh, okay, that, that's what I think I would like to have for all my decisions in life, <laughs> including like buying a house and finding a husband. So I make a joke with that, but yeah. Um, so uh, if the decision is not shared with your parents, it could be bad, right? We know that. No. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, that's what kind of, you know, started it. And when I learned about it, I was like, wow, I, I would really like to develop patient decision aids um, to really help people make the best decision possible and stick to their treatments, right? Like yeah. if you choose it yourself, then you have more chances of like doing it later on. Yeah. You know, like, I, like I, I work as a realtor with my dad and oftentimes that's what we always say is that we're not here to tell you what to do, tell you what house to buy. We're here to give you the information so that you can decide what's the right decision for you. And sometimes I feel like doctors don't don't think that way they they just give you an option and they give you and they say no you should do this because I think this will work but oftentimes we forget that patients do need options and patients do have to be able to decide what their medication they're on what therapy they're doing like you know what works for them so how did you guys actually meet each other Laurie, let's talk about her story. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I know my first recollections actually of meeting Kedin, they might actually predate yours because I think it was one of the first um, research conferences I ever went to um, for the Canadian Arthritis Network. And I was, geez, I was probably like in my mid to late 20s and I walked into this room and there were all these posters on the wall. And I think Kedin was at one of these posters presenting. You must have been like a master's student or something then. And uh, I started looking around. I'm like, first of all, I didn't understand the whole poster session thing. Yeah, I remember some of the meetings of the Canadian Arthritis Network. So it was like a network where really you had researchers, clinicians, and patient partners. Mm -hmm. So I think I met Laurie, and I remember at some point we were like eating, and it was at the conference, you know, and we were talking. And I just find like, a, it was really nice talking to her. And it was really kind of like, 
it's good to have the patient perspective. And it was so much fun. And we met like every conference. And then at some point I said, hey, Laurie, you know, do you want to give me advice on my research? And then she said, yes. And we went to eat lunch next to your office building. I remember that. <laughs> it's always food. I'm kidding. It's always food. <laughs> it's always food that helps spark friendships. Food for everything, like everything you do. Oh, let's go out, let's eat. But yours is just like a coincidence that it actually happened. You do explain a lot on your YouTube channel. I know you've been to conferences. I'm also on that YouTube channel. But just to give everyone a little bit of background, we will be putting the YouTube channel in our description so everyone can check out um, Lori Kareen and the Choice Research Lab YouTube channel. But what is the research project that you're currently working on? What was the inspiration behind this project? I know you mentioned shared decision-making and all that, but why certainly that project? So uh, we're working on the project. So it's the JIA option map. Um, so it's a project that started a few years ago. And so what happened is um, we started to think of uh, um, the, the, the notion of pain in juvenile arthritis. And we kind of realized, and I think Lori was one of the person to say that, and other people told us, well, pain is not really discussed as much as it should. And the different treatments to treat pain and the different treatments in general to treat many different symptoms of juvenile arthritis are not necessarily discussed a lot. So for example, medication is discussed a lot, right? Medication to deal with kind of the inflammation, the disease itself is often discussed more in clinical practice, but like all the other treatments, like, you know, massage, like insoles and, uh, uh, you know, uh, chiropractics, all these other treatments um, are not necessarily discussed so much with patients. So one of the things we found is that people were using a lot of complementary and alternative medicine and a lot of non-pharmacological options, and they didn't necessarily talk about it with their healthcare providers. Um, and so healthcare providers were like, oh, it's very important to assess that, but we don't know what to say to people, right? We don't know what kind of advice to give them. And so when I learned about patient decision aid, I was like, well, maybe it's good to have a patient decision aid about that, right? There's so many different options. And what can you do for your pain? And so right now we developed the GIE option map. So it's, um, it's an interactive uh, web application um, for all the different, like not all the different, but many different options for pain management in juvenile arthritis. So right now there's 39 options, but there could be more, like we could add more. Some of them are like proven, there's some scientific evidence, we, we show studies, um, and some of them don't really have a lot of information. So we don't know, you know, we're like, oh, you could potentially use this, but we're not sure. Um, and so what is interesting is that based on where your pain is, based on what you prefer in terms of treatment, it's gonna show a few treatment options you could try and some you could also discuss with your uh, team, with your healthcare team. So it's kind of how it started. And I think Lori would say with the team, with the patient partners, like we kind of modified it over time, right, Lori? Like we, um, it's kind of becoming even bigger than we thought at the start. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would think so, you know, and I just think in terms of pain, um, I guess I've always been really supportive of doing more there because especially looking back, I mean, even as an adult, I feel like it's, there aren't always a lot of, of, of solutions offered yet. It's like one of the most, like the biggest symptoms that we need to manage like every day. 
but particularly when I look back to my my teenage years I honestly think some of the worst pain I've ever had and that's been the most unmanaged in my life comes from that time and maybe it's just because you don't have the, the tools the vocabulary maybe it's like the healthcare providers don't know what to say so I think that just is why I feel this is just so important <laughs> and why I've like, you know, aside from Kedin being a very lovely person to work with, she, this project is just so important, I think, from, from that perspective, you know, and I really look forward to the time when everyone can access this and not feel, you know, so alone, you know, I, I think living in pain, there's nothing that makes you feel just quite so isolated um, and, and having information sort of, it helps negate that, I guess, to some degree, right? That you actually have a set of choices that can help you get through the next day. It is really important. I know when I was, I think I wrote for something. I don't remember what it was specifically. Maybe Lori, remember we wrote some quotes or something. I mentioned how um, I wish I had this when I was diagnosed because it's so important. I think my parents said so much research that they didn't really need to do that could have been there. They had to do digging through Google to find other treatment options that would work alongside medications. And it was really hard to have those comfortable conversations with your healthcare providers because you're so scared that there are these options that you want to talk about, but you're just scared that maybe like medications, the only thing that'll work. So what are your thoughts on alternative treatments and why have you really focused it on that, knowing that maybe some people might not be open to wanting to have options in their clinics and stuff like that. Why have you gone forth with this? I think one of the things I could say is we had a lot of pediatric rheumatologists and nurses um, and physios and OTs who kind of told us, like, it's really important to have a lot of choices. It's really important to look at the different options. Some of them may be dangerous and maybe we need to tell people, right? And some of them may potentially help them, right? So it's good to have like all the tools, right? In your toolkit, right? Um, and I think so some of the healthcare providers who work specifically in pain. So I'm thinking, for example, there's the CARA network, which is a big network, North American network of researchers in pediatric rheumatology. So there's a group dedicated to pain. And so some of these pediatric rheumatologists are really trained um, kind of to deal with pain in GIA. And they often, they already have a list of all the things they can offer their patients, right? So often they're already kind of prepared to discuss these different options. Um, I think maybe not all pediatric rheumatologists or adult rheumatologists are there, right? But I think everybody now realizes how important it is. So I'm thinking, for example, like, just look at nutrition, how, nutri you know, what kind of nutrition you should have in order to kind of optimize your health, you know, and, and the impact it could have on the arthritis symptoms, potentially. I mean, I look at, you know, orthotics, for example, orthotics is not necessarily always, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of advice on it. Um, massage, mindfulness, all these things that I think now are more mainstream than they were before, right? I think now everybody's like, if you only talk about medication, you're really missing a big part. So I think yeah. there's kind of a common understanding of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I might just want to add to, I mean, there has been in the health policy world, um, there's been a bigger focus too on, on pain management. So there's the national pain task force uh, and they've just, you know, provided some recommendations. And I think it's just getting increasingly recognized that it's like, you need multidisciplinary um, pain management. You need, you know, things like counseling, things like, um, you know, like the orthotics, like it could be a lot of different things. So I would, I, I, I think that's probably the most effective way of managing your pain is having many different choices that you can pull together and hopefully find something that works for you. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to provide more information if your viewers want to see what that report is. Uh, it's a topic close to my heart too, because the CAPA president is actually like a member of that task force. So they've included people with lived experience, um, you know, people who are feeling that pain uh, directly in the work. So, uh, and it's really nice to see a solution that hopefully, or, or these recommendations, now it's a matter of implementing them now in all the provinces. So. And even now that we are, like, we're talking about mental health more frequently, and like Natasha and I have discussed it before, that mental health and physical well-being, especially when you have a chronic illness, really play hand in hand. If mentally you're not feeling your best and you're feeling anxious and stressed out, it does end up showing up in your body through your chronic illness. And so discussing that and, and sometimes those that pain isn't always treatable with your medication because it's not it's not a hundred percent your um your condition so like those things i feel like they're so important to bring to the forefront and you guys are doing an amazing job at opening up people to these different um treatments that we really do need to talk about and bring forward all right so what do you guys hope that rheumatologists and healthcare providers provide for patients that they are not really providing right now? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really <laughs> good question. I would say, um, yeah, I guess I really see shared decision-making as being like the future. Um, I guess that's why, you know, even with Kappa, we had Ked in, in for a webinar with some others. And I'd really like to see that more and more, I think, particularly thinking back to my transition too from pediatrics to, uh, you know, the adult world, realizing that, yeah, I do have some control here, right? That this is my body and I can make these decisions, right? It's a tough, you know, road. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I won't you know, under, like underplay that. Um, but I would really like to see that where it's like patient needs, patient preferences, that involvement in decision making, I would, I really want as many rheumatologists and healthcare professionals to, um, to support that, right, and realize that in the end, it's like your body, right? So you've got to be comfortable making decisions about it, whether it's medications, or seeking counseling, or, you know, trying physiotherapy, or or, or what, what, whatever it is. So that would be my advice. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. And I think that there's many, many uh, healthcare providers now in rheumatology who really are feeling this way and that's what they want to. So I think it's just the whole system needs to go towards that, right? Follow this trend. Um, the only, the other thing I would say too is that there's so many different options, but some of these treatment options are expensive. 
And it's still an issue, right? So some people tell me, oh, I'd like to do more massage or more, you know, psychology sessions or things like that. And, and it's expensive because like your insurance pays a little bit, but not everything. So I still think that it, there's a big barrier to all these um, interventions. So maybe just we need to test more of these interventions to really have payers like pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a problem when you don't, you have services that you need, but then you don't have access to it. So Lori, what did you find that was the hardest part of your arthritis journey? And how has this JIA option map really helped you? In terms of my own, like probably the biggest challenge when I think back was the road to acceptance um, of, of what that, I think of particularly when you're diagnosed as a teen and you sort of look around and you're like, wow, I'm like, <laughs> there's no one like me, right? There's everyone is out doing like, you know, everything they want and you're like struggling with fatigue and it's just all these things. So I think coming to terms to what arthritis um you know, meant in my life, uh, the impact that it has, and then adapting my expectations was probably the biggest um, challenge looking back. So ironically, probably like most of my teenage years were probably like the hardest. And I think it's just hard for anyone, right? Like being, you know, that period of growing up, I say, um, and then you throw a chronic illness into it. And so, um, but I think the biggest thing I've learned, like just by working with Kedin and 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 even some of the other researchers, is that you know patients can have um, you know a seat at the table, right? And so I hope that others like you too. That, that that's why it's so fantastic to see. You know, it's like you're doing this podcast all on your own. Like Natasha's involved in research projects and and beyond. I think you're involved with Pacer, and it's just. Um, yeah, like I'd like to see more of that. And that I, I think people just need to see that they can make those sort of contributions um, with their lived experience. Like you don't need to have like a PhD in whatever, <laughs> you know, or clinical epidemiology, not to, uh, you know, minimize, uh, you know, the education and that, and, you know, you need that too. But it's, I, I really think that, uh, yeah, we should all see a role for ourselves if we want to pursue it as, you know, bringing patient perspectives, those lived, you know, experiences to the table, because I think it's really needed, you know, it's a, you'll always find that you're like, saying the thing that no one else is saying. And that's exactly why you're there. Right. So it's okay to feel like that. And it's just, uh, yeah. So anyways, I, I, I think I would, I, I think that's just been like an amazing experience for me. And I hope to see others come behind me to sort of take on the similar roles. Yeah, I'd say that it's so it's so important. And I didn't realize how important patient perspective is and how much it's actually valued. Like Lori's been giving me a lot of things to do recently and I'm very much enjoying it. It's so inspiring um, to see that your voice actually matters. Like you don't think it matters, but it actually does. And you can make a big difference by being involved in research projects. And that's why I really like working with you, but that's another story. I, say, I, I agree 100% with Lori and Natasha <laughs> for the record. <laughs> um, to end this off, we have one last question for both of you. What do you both plan on achieving in the future with arthritis and your research? Well, I think, uh, so continue to work with my amazing patient partners um, to continue kind of, you know, uh, working on the GI option map. So we want to add 
um, other symptoms like fatigue and also mental health uh, symptoms. Um, because really, I think a lot of the patient partners and patients uh, that we um, interviewed really said it was really important and it's linked to pain often. Um, and so we're going to work on that. Uh, we have also some exciting stuff coming um, because there's a researcher in Sherbrooke uh, who is going to modify the GI option map to actually have a version for adults with chronic pain, uh, chronic musculoskeletal pain. So the goal is that we could, it could make little babies. <laughs> so <laughs> it could make like a lot of other similar tools that would be free and that could be used by people with other chronic conditions. So your baby can make babies. Yes, exactly. Exponentially. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, in terms of my goals, I guess I've, uh, I mean, it, it's funny like this. I like to see more patient leaders in the arthritis world. I would like to see more of us uh, at the table, whether it be with government, whether it be with research, you know, bringing, I, I think we, we could play a really unique role because like everything affects us, right? Like research does, the way healthcare is delivered does, access to medications, like we feel it all at the end of the day. So I think we could play like this role in between all of that to kind of paint uh, you know, a, a better future for people.